Hi, this is Jim Lobato, and I'm president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You're listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on the BizTalk radio show. I started BizTalk so you'd have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group. At Performance Group, we work at the front end of a company's revenue stream. We find the salespeople who generate the revenue, and we provide onboarding programs that get them doing that sooner. Our passion is aligning talent with opportunity. That's why we're known as a Salesforce development company. Enjoy the program. On our program today, we have Jason Jennings, New York Times bestselling author and frequent guest expert here on BizTalk. Previous discussions with Jason's, like the one we had on his book, The Reinventors, How Extraordinary Companies Pursue Radical Continuous Change, can be found on our website at biztalkradioshow.com. Jason's latest book, The High Speed Company, tackles the subject of creating cultures of urgency and growth that are able to compete in a nanosecond world. Jason, welcome back to the program. Hi, Jim. It is great to be back with you on BizTalk. Jason, we've had you on the show several times, but for listeners who may not be familiar with your body of work, share with them the research you do each year and what you discovered in that research that caused you to write The High Speed Company. Jim, each year I interview about a 1,000 CEOs and executives, leaders and entrepreneurs, in preparation for the speeches I do. And I always ask them three questions. Tell me about your company. Make me understand it. Tell me your story. And then the big question, what's keeping you awake at night these days about your business? And over the past several years, all I've been hearing from people is, look, we need to be faster. We need more urgency. We need everyone on board the growth bandwagon. We need to be more intentional about everything. And I think that everybody understands that unless you achieve a culture of urgency and growth within your organization, whatever size it is, uh, your days are probably uh, going to be numbered. And there's a number of reasons for that. And if I might, just let me cite several. First of all, there's more competition than ever before, and there's more on the way. There's the transparency of everything. So if you give me the name of a business in Lexington, Kentucky, or Des Moines, Iowa, give me five minutes on a computer, and I'll tell you how many customers they have, how many stock-keeping units they have. I will estimate their annual revenues and profits and be perilously close. So uh, there's total transparency, which leads to more competition. Every penny of margin is constantly under attack. Relationships don't count as much as they once did. When I began in business, it was, uh, you know, get everybody to like you, become everybody's friend, and you'll just do fine. Uh, But we can't justify doing business just based on friendship anymore. And then the big one is that ultimately everything becomes a commodity. Uh, Many years ago, I was one of the early adopters of a large 55-inch television screen in my family room, a big splurge, and I think I paid twelve dollars or $14,000 for it. Uh, today, when you walk into a Costco, you see the exact same television, although about 10 times better, for about $1,900. So eventually, everything becomes a commodity. The marketplace tells you how much they're going to pay for it, and your margin is going to be gone. And unless you're replacing it with something else, another service, another product, something that adds greater value, uh, your, your days are numbered. So if you're serious about being business, you have no choice but to have a culture of urgency and growth. I like your quote in the book, get fast or die slow. There is no alternative. And, of course, leading a high-speed enterprise is all about change, and a lot of people don't like change. And as I tell people, well, if you don't like change, you're certainly not going to like extinction because that's what's going to happen. 
Jason, you give a lot of examples in your book. And at the same time, I noticed that no technology companies are referenced in your book. One of the problems or one of the reasons there's no technology companies in the book is I'm one of the few authors that can claim that out of my past eight books, uh, I've never written about a company that went upside down or broke or disappeared or became irrelevant. I hesitate to write about any company unless they have proven to me through our research that they can do what they do consistently, they can grow, they can actually remain profitable, and they can maintain that momentum. And so therefore, until a technology company is at least 10 years old, I'm, I'm going to kind of stay away from it. Jason, also absent in your book, is any reference to any software that may cause your company to grow at a faster pace? Well, and let me explain the answer to that. That's because there's nothing proprietary about software. There is nothing proprietary about digital. All of those same tools are available to everyone, uh, unless your software is proprietary. If I found someone uh, who, had, who owned the technology and it was proprietary and it was a competitive advantage, I would be the first to write about it, as I did about Charles Schwab. In my book, it's not the big that eat the small, it's the fast that eat the slow. They own the technology, therefore it was a competitive advantage and continues to be. And so I I generally don't write about things uh, that don't offer companies competitive advantage. I think to find the competitive advantage, you need to look inside the company, and when, whether somebody is, owns a, a family-owned restaurant in Des Moines or a laundry and dry cleaner or a manufacturer of widgets or a bank, I think, or a technology company, I think the basics that allow a company to become a high-speed enterprise are the same. I don't think there's any difference. If we're going to look inside, right, we're going to look inside ourselves, and we're going to say, okay, we need to move faster, and we need to operate faster, what are we looking at inside of ourselves first? Okay. Well, first of all, we have to dismiss the notion that a high-speed company is, uh, that people are running around frantic or physically fast, filled with nervous energy and 10 cans of uh, jolt inside them. That's not what we found in these high-speed organizations at all. And, 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 in fact, we found breathing to be a lot easier, movement to be a lot de- more deliberate, a lot more time to savor the accomplishments. If you want frantic, if you want people panting and out of breath, look to a company, for example, like Sears. Sears, once America's biggest retailer, where America shops, uh, they, to survive, I mean, they finally had to merge with Kmart and together those two organizations over the past 10 years for 40 consecutive quarters, their profits and revenues have gone down, 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 down. Uh, that's, uh, I'll tell you what, if you want to find some people who are out of breath, and I mean not knowing which way to turn, it would be an organization like that. So we began, Jim, by asking ourselves the question, and I, and I think it's what you're asking. What does fast look like? What, what does a high-speed company look like? And then it's easy to talk about what they do. Well, in our research, we, we pretty much determined that if you had a company that solved problems the first time, you'd be faster than your competition. If you could keep customers from defecting, you'd probably be faster because you wouldn't be on a constant hunt to replace customers who are leaving. According to the Gallup poll of the American workplace last year, 70%, and I, I repeat this, 70% of American workers say they are unengaged or actively unengaged from their job. So unless everybody listening thinks their company is immune, 70% of your workforce 
are not engaged. Imagine if you could get those 70% of the workforce engaged, you'd be faster. If, if you were a company that allowed people to admit mistakes, not cover them up, you'd be faster. If people were encouraged to improvise, you'd be faster. If you filled jobs with people who like being fast, you'd be faster. If you could reduce resistance to new ideas, you'd be faster. And if you did all of those same things at the same time simultaneously, just imagine how much faster than you would be, uh, that your organization would be than anyone else. So it's not about being frantic. It's not running up and down the stairs as fast as you possibly can. It is truly nailing the basics. All right. So what are the basics? Here's the biggest discovery for the book. I think that there were nine great discoveries for the book because I wrote it and researched it. But I think the biggest one for the book is this. And I cover it in Chapter 1, and that's why it moved into the number one position. When we identified these most remarkable companies, uh, high-speed companies that have created cultures of urgency and growth, you have to remember we sifted through 220,000 companies, studied more than 55,000, and conducted more than 11,000 interviews to get the data for this book. The biggest single surprise was this. Every one of the final contenders, every one of the companies that we write about in the book, has a purpose for doing good. They don't have a vision statement. They don't have a mission statement. Uh, you know, most people don't even know and can't repeat the vision statements and mission statements of their companies because they're long, they're not inspiring, they don't touch the soul, they don't speak to them. And so unless everybody in an organization can tell you what the vision or mission is, it's senseless and useless to have one. They, and vision and mission have virtually become buzzword bingo in business. People hear the word vision and mission and their eyes roll back in their head. We discovered on the part of these incredible companies, that they all share a sense of purpose. Now, and this is not just semantics, because as we dug deeper, we learned that they actually not only have a purpose, but they have a purpose for doing something good. Our guest is Jason Jennings. We're talking about his book, The High Speed Company. In addition to Jason sharing his insights on growing your company, you can find other experts that have shared their wisdom with us here on BizTalk. Those are available as podcasts on our website and cover business topics in the areas of recruiting, leadership, marketing, performance management, sales and sales management, and personal development. You can download those podcasts from our website at biztalkradioshow.com. That's B-I-Z, talkradioshow.com. Jason, when we left off, you talked about how vision and mission are important, but not as important as having a purpose in terms of having a high-speed company. So tell our audience what you discovered in your research with these high-speed companies about the power behind a purpose. We discovered on the part of these incredible companies that they all share a sense of purpose. Now, and this is not just semantics. Because as we dug deeper, we learned that they actually not only have a purpose, but they have a purpose for doing something good. Let me give you a couple of very quick examples. Please do. O'Reilly Automotive began in 1956, the year I was born, when Charlie O'Reilly in Springfield, Missouri, was fired for being an old fart. Well, rather than go and lounge on his porch in a glider, he rented a building across the street 
and decided to open up his own store, the first O'Reilly Auto Parts store in Springfield, Missouri. All 12 employees who worked for him at the old store came and wanted to work for him at the new store, and he said, no, you've got to make an investment. And so back in 1956, some people put 200 bucks in, a couple mortgaged their house, and came up with 1000 or $2,000, and the first store was born. Well, of course, today, O'Reilly Automotive has 4,500 stores across the United States. And for, get this, Jim, for 55 out of 57 years, they've achieved double-digit growth. <clears throat> Our research teams have never been able to find another replica model. But here's what old Charlie said when he sat down with these people. He said, you know, we are going to offer the greatest customer service in the world. Now, think how outrageous that would have been back in 1956 in Little Springfield, Missouri. He didn't say we're going to offer the best customer service in Springfield or in Missouri or in the United States. He said we're going to offer the best customer service in the world. But then he said something very profound. He said we're going to do that, actually, and he kind of winked his eye, by making the customer number two. Because we're going to make our workers number one. Because only if we make our workers number one can we offer the greatest customer service in the world. Today, if you go to work at an O'Reilly Automotive, earning minimum wage, eight, nine, ten bucks an hour on the counter, if you do your job well, in three or four months, you're promoted. And in three or four months, if you do the second job well, you're promoted. You're already a stockholder in O'Reilly Automotive after just several months. The executives in the company have the exact same benefit package as the lowest worker in the company. But here's what's remarkable. You spend, as a high school graduate, go to O'Reilly's, work yourself up, spend 35 years there. You'll leave the company with somewhere between a million and a million and a half dollars in your retirement package. They kept true to their word. They make the customer number one by making them number two, by making their people number one. And we found this consistently. Let me give you more one quick example, which is going to cause your jaw to drop. Henry Schein is based in New York. It's an $11 billion company. Nothing very sexy. They distribute uh, supplies and materials and product to doctor's offices, dental offices, and veterinarian practices. But when you talk to Stan Bergman, who's the CEO and chairman of the company, he tells the story of growing up in South Africa. And it, where he said the white people did a wickedly good job of hiding the horrors of apartheid from the white population. But he said, my mother and father were doctors, and they wanted their children to witness firsthand the horrors of apartheid. He said, from the earliest age, I knew that I was going to exist to root out social injustice every place. And so what this man does, an $11 billion company, as he told me, I never look at the financial statements. He said once or twice a year. He said, I travel 28 days a year, or 28 days a month. I'm only asleep in my own home one or two days a month because I have to be out there protecting our culture. And I said, what is your culture? He said, our, our culture is to root out social injustice. I said, no, you distribute medical supplies and dental supplies and veterinarian supplies. He said, no, let me give you an example. He said there are millions of children in America who have never seen a dentist, who have dental decay and dental problems. He said, how hard could it be for us to go to our dental manufacturers and say, we need a million free dental kits? How hard could it be to go to our dentist customers and say, you know, we know you work hard, but now we want you to work one weekend a month free and provide free dental care to kids? How hard could it be for us to throw $10, $15 million in the pot and create a program called Smiles for Kids that is now serving more than a million young kids in the United States who had never seen a dentist? This company 
has 100 programs going on, like Smile for Kids, around the world in all of their locations. And that's, Jim, why they have millennials lined up outside, out the door who want to work for Henry Schein. Why? Because they want to do well by doing something good. They want to make the world a better place. If you want to have a high-speed company, the first thing you have to have is you have to have a purpose, a shared purpose that everybody knows. It's got to be brief. It can't be long like a mission statement or a vision statement. It has to be memorable. It has to evoke an emotional response. It has to show deep conviction. Only those who buy in get hired. You've got to get rid of those who don't. And you constantly shine a light on the good the enterprise is doing and celebrate it constantly. As Bob Engel CEO of a company that all of many of your listeners will be familiar with, CoBank, bank that deals with rural cooperatives and farmers and ranchers all across the United States, told me, and they're very profound words. He said, Jason, when you give people the why, they'll give you the how. We need a little bit more of that in business. When you give people the why, they'll give you the how. I get the impression, Jason, that if you don't get this basic principle right, of standing for a good purpose, then the other principles you write about in your book will not be effective. No, no. I, if, if, if you don't nail this one, if any business that does not align themselves with a purpose for doing good. I, I, I was with a, a chemical company earlier this week, and I guess when you're with a chemical company, you conjure up all kinds of ideas of bad people and chemical spills and harm to the environment. But as I started studying chemicals, the, the, the reality is, I mean, when you woke up this morning without chemicals, I mean, you would have been living in a cave. There wouldn't have been any shaving lotion. There wouldn't have been any deodorant. There wouldn't have been any food, processed food, in your refrigerator. I mean, without chemicals, we wouldn't exist. And I asked this group of people, these several hundred people are in the business. I said, have you ever thought about the good you do? Have you ever considered the good, uh, how you make the world a better place? I mean, by what you responsibly do. Well, you ought to have seen the lights come on in their eyes. They'd been in the business for a long time and never thought about all the good they actually do. What is the good your business does? And, Jason, how important is this when it comes to working with employees that are part of the millennial generation? There's about 125 million millennials out there. Millennials are going to make up the workforce in America for decades to come. So everybody just better get ready for it. Millennials are going to be your workforce. There's only one problem. According to the University of Chicago social study that came out last year, 80% of millennials don't trust most people in businesses. And if I can just illustrate this with a very, very quick story, I was in Chicago uh, giving a speech in one hotel, and I was staying at another hotel, and I was wondering if I was going to take a taxi or how I was going to get there. And I called down to the front desk, and they said, no, 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 we have cars. We'll, we'll bring you over. And so as I'm standing there, a young guy pulls up in a nice, shiny Lexus automobile, jumps out, shakes my hand, great handshake, Mr. Jennings. I'm uh, Daniel, and I'm going to be bringing you to your speech. And he opens the trunk, and he puts the, my bag in the trunk and opens the door, and I jump in, and I'm thinking, God, he's got white, shiny teeth. I mean, the guy, he's handsome, he's strong, he's got this great handshake, obviously bright. And I'm thinking to myself, what the hell is he doing driving a car for a hotel for probably 10 bucks an hour? And so I get in the back, and I'm, I'm looking at him in the rearview mirror, and he said, I caught you looking at me. He said, uh, what are you wondering? He said, I bet I know what it is. What such an obviously bright young man like me is doing driving a car? I said, bingo. I said, that's what I was thinking. I said, did you go to school or what? He said, well, of course I went to school. 
And I said, where'd you go? He said, Northwestern. I said, well, were you, were you dumb or slow or a C student? <laughs> and he said, no, I graduated second in my class. I said, well, what did you study? And he said, I studied business. And I said, well, now I've really got a question. What's a good-looking, strong, strapping guy with shiny teeth and a strong handshake who graduated number two in his class in business at Northwestern doing driving a car for 10 or 11 bucks an hour? And he said, well, I've been out of school for a year. He said, I've had 13 interviews with 13 different companies. And he said, I've been offered nine jobs. And I said, and? And he said, I turned them all down. Well, I didn't understand this because I'm of an age where I didn't have an opportunity to turn down a job. And I said, why? And he said, two reasons. He said, none of them were doing anything that, were gonna, that was going to make the world a better place. That's number one. And number two, I knew that I'd be working there for five, six, or seven, or eight years before anybody in the executive suite even knew my name. He said, I'm not waiting that long to get recognized. He said, I want to contribute now. Millennials want to be associated with doing something good, and millennials want to be recognized for the contribution they have to make. If you can't accommodate those two things that are just part of the spirit of the millennial population, you're in for a very tough run. Our guest is Jason Jennings. We're talking about his book, The High Speed Company. Jason, we finished up our conversation on the importance of having a purpose inside your company, but there must be some other components in addition to purpose that creates speed around having a high-speed company. So share with the audience some of the additional components. Okay. All right. I think uh, in our time together, if I'm really going to give you something of value, it would be to talk about the need for a set of guiding principles. You know, Jim, every culture, every culture has a set of guiding principles. As Moses delivered Christianity and Judaism, a list of thou shalls and thou shall nots. Buddha provided Buddhists an eightfold path. Muhammad gave Islam the five pillars. And Patajali gave the Hindus their five principles and disciplines. It's really the responsibility of the leader of the organization to have a set of five or six guiding principles. Call them the rules of the road. But now, let me show you. And everybody wants to say, oh, we've got that nailed. And I'd say that's bunk. I believe that 99.999% of businesses do not have a set of rules of the road or guiding values or guiding principles. They say they do. They may have published it once. It might be on their website. But now, hear this story. So I'm on an airplane flying from Indianapolis uh, to Chicago to catch another flight. It's going to be a short flight. I'm not a big talker on the airplanes. I've been teaching all day and doing interviews all day, and I pretty much just keep to myself. Guy plops down next to me, and I can tell myself, he's got talker. I know what's going to happen. And he, he was a larger-than-life uh, character, shall we say. And hello, and he shook my hand, and I shook his, and I, I, I knew what was going to happen. I mean, we were going to talk the whole way to Chicago. Darn it, I wanted to take a nap. And in a couple of minutes, I, I like almost everybody, but in a couple of minutes, I kind of knew I, I, I probably didn't like him. He was bombastic and arrogant and, and didn't treat the flight attendants very nicely. Um, and so uh, he, after I told him what I did, I said, well, what do you do? Well, it turns out that he was the number three person, uh, senior VP, marketing and sales, for one of the biggest drug companies in the world. And uh, so I sat there and I thought, okay, I'm going to get this guy. And I looked at him and I said, let me ask you a question. Does your company uh, have a set of guiding principles or guiding values? He said, well, of course we do. Well, you know my next question, Jim. 
I said, what are they? What are they? Right. He said, well, he said, well, ethics, ethics. We're a drug company, for God's sake. We have to do everything ethically. I said, well, that's a very, very good one to have for a drug company. What are the others? <clears throat> and he chortled, and he said, let me, uh, uh, let me uh, get on the website, and I'll, uh, I'll show you the list. Here's a number three man in the company, one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world, that has long published a list of guiding principles, and the number three man in the company couldn't tell me what they were. The arrogance, how delusional can you be? How can you expect the workers to put any credence or believability in a set of guiding principles if the number three person in the company can't tell them or can't repeat them? And I believe that most companies have gone through an exercise of creating a set of guiding values, guiding principles. You know, let's do a kumbaya exercise someplace and put together our guiding principles and values. They publish it a couple of times. It sits on the website, and not another damn thing happens. Therefore, companies can't make decisions. They can't make quick decisions. Every decision becomes a one-off decision. So you've got six or eight people sitting around a conference table, and everybody wants to have a voice, and everybody has an opinion, and everybody wants to weigh in on whether or not we should do this. Let me tell you, Jim, in all of our research, in two years of research for this book, we didn't find that. We didn't find any meetings. We didn't find any sit-down meetings where lard butts have to pontificate on what, uh, what the decision should be. What we found was we found two or three people standing in a hallway for two or three minutes, and it was very simple. It uh, doesn't fit the guiding principles. We're not doing it. It fits the guiding principles. What do we need to talk about? Let's go. Decisions happen like that in high-speed companies. Decisions can only happen quickly if you've got a set of rules, a set of guiding principles. At J.M. Smucker, who 10 or 12 years ago was a $600 million company, and today is more than $6 billion company, talk about being a high-speed company, they've got a set of five guiding values. And when you go to work for the company, you don't go to work and learn your job. You go to the classroom and you spend a week or two learning the guiding principles of the company. Just imagine how much faster, how much faster an organization would be, I mean, if they had this set of guiding principles and everyone knew the guiding principles. And what they do is having a set of guiding principles provide predictability because everybody's playing by the same rules. It eliminates needless bureaucracies and micromanagement and people second-guessing decisions. It ends paralysis by analysis where we've got to think about this and study it to death. It increases transparency, and it provides everyone the same moral compass, the same moral compass. Everybody is playing with the same moral compass. So, number one, when you begin with this purpose, and number two, if you only did one other thing from the book, I mean, there's seven other things you can do from the book, but if you only did one other thing from the book, it's create this set of guiding principles and make them come alive for everybody in the organization. And the time to talk about your guiding principles or core values is during the interview process. Look how so many companies do so many things bass backwards. I mean, they really do. When would you want to talk to somebody about your purpose? Well, I'd suggest it's in the very first interview, not after they start work. When would you want to talk to somebody about your guiding principles? I'd say in the first interview, not after they've signed on the dotted line and come to work with you. I mean, the two most important things that you need to be talking about during the interview process to sort people out, I mean, is one, why we exist, the good we do. What is our purpose? And do you want to be part of that purpose? Do you see yourself living and celebrating and, and loving leading this purpose? And here are the guiding principles, how we make decisions.
I mean, imagine if you just if a company just did those two things and nothing else. Imagine how much faster they would be. Oh, absolutely, especially your point again of moving that forward in the recruiting process and let people know that. Jason, it's one thing to have those principles. How do you keep them alive in an organization? One of the companies not far away from you that comes to mind that I've written widely about in my books is Coke Industry. Depending on the year, they or Cargill are either the largest privately held company in the world. And despite the fact that I may have a few political differences with Charles Koch, I needed to know how he has created the world's biggest or second biggest privately held company. And one of the first things I noticed when you go on the campus is there's no artwork. Uh, beautiful buildings, very functional, uh, but there's no artwork. But what you see every place are the guiding principles of the organization. They hang in posters. They hang in banners. It's written on coffee cups. You see it on the hamburger wrappers in the cafeteria. I mean, how, how, so how can you work there day in and day out and be exposed to some the celebration of the guiding principles, I mean, before you get them? I mean, so if we do have... As the, these Ten Commandments of how we do our work, or if we have the set of core values or guiding principles, they're only of any value if everybody knows them and everybody practices them, and if we celebrate those who practice them, and we get rid of those who don't want any part of them. Yeah, a quick story I want to add to that. So I'm working at the Fortune 500 company, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of bureaucracy, a lot of systems, a lot of rules, as there should be. You're trying to control it. And... Um, Anyway, they changed the contract terms, one of our engagements. We spotted, and it, it was really to their favor. And I thought, well, this is weird. We have this great working relationship, and all of a sudden they zing this. So inside our company, we're going, I can't believe this. What's going on? We're going to get, you know, whatever hosed on this deal, blah, blah, blah. And so we called our VP we're working with because the contract came out of purchasing. And I said, hey, what's going on here? And he says, why don't you ask him? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, there's a good idea. He says, when you ask him, he says, I'll give you some advice. He says, you better not question our intent. <laughs> he says, but you question our intent, we shouldn't be working together. Right. I thought, oh, my God. So I called up the, the head of the purchase scene. I said, hey, we noticed a paragraph change. And I said, you know what? I don't think it's, it's really worded right. And he goes, well, he says, okay, uh, good point. He says, why don't, uh, he says, why don't you rewrite it and send it to us? Mm-hmm. It's a Fortune 500 company. And rewrite it and send it to us. And I said, okay, we can do that. I'm just kind of curious where it came from. He goes, ah, we were doing some work with some IT company, and and, and actually uh, we didn't have our bases covered on that, and they kind of screwed us over on a deal, and and we put this paragraph in there. But I see your point. He says, just rework it. And I hung at the phone thinking, there's a guy in the purchase department who can make a decision about allowing a vendor to rewrite the language inside their own contract, which we did, by the way. We rewrote it. We sent it to them. They rubber-stamped it. Yep. A Fortune 500 company. On a contract. (laughs) (laughs) To your point, right, if you have these principles, people can make decisions on their own. Exactly. Exactly. It's amazing how it works. And you don't need this vast bureaucracy second-guessing and watching over everybody's decisions. We don't need to run it by the attorneys, and we can't do this. And again, to your point, everything just moves faster. Thanks for joining in on the conversation. Our guest is Jason Jennings. We're talking about his book, The High Speed Company. We've been talking the whole program about how to create urgency and growth in a nanosecond world. If you're looking for more insight on how to grow your company or yourself, you can go out to our website, 
biztalkradioshow.com. That's B-I-Z, talkradioshow.com. There you'll find podcasts of other experts that have tackled subjects in the area of sales, marketing, recruiting, and, of course, personal growth. Okay, Jason, we've been talking about these guiding principles that a company has, and I was just curious, how do companies keep that alive? Because I know you just can't post it once and hope that everybody just buys in and they live it every day. So how do they make that a living part of the organization? I'll give you the uh, six uh, quick and easy points. Okay? okay. First of all, there must only be five or six. You can't have eight, nine, ten, or twelve. You can't because they're not going to be remembered. So you have to have four, five, or six guiding principles. That's number one. They each can't be a paragraph. You've got to be able to say them, I mean, in a sentence that evokes a response. That's number two. Number three, buy-in begins at the top. They have to see that the top dogs are living by the guiding principles. There's no winking and saying, well, you know, he's the boss, so he's allowed to do what he does. There's none of that inside of these companies. I mean, witness, case in point, at O'Reilly Automotive, I'm blown away. Here's Greg Hensley, the CEO, a veteran of 35 years of the company, uh, at the helm of an organization with 75 or 80,000 people. He gets the same number of sick days and the same number of vacation days as somebody who's been there several years. I mean, that's it. I mean, you can only have authenticity if everybody is playing by the same rules. So buy-in begins at the top. The next thing is they have to be posted everywhere, posted everywhere. Next, they have to be celebrated. When somebody has a win made in accordance with the guiding principles, I mean, it's got to be called front and center. We have to have a celebration. But alternatively, alternatively, decisions made outside the realm of the guiding principles are not celebrated. There's no winking and saying, well, you brought in this big contract, you did it the wrong way, and you violated all of our guiding principles, but we're going to overlook it this time. Because then, of course, there are no guiding principles. So you have to celebrate them. Next, as I mentioned, you've got to make them part of the, an integral part of the hiring decision. And then, finally, you've got to get rid of the cave people. And who are the cave people? The cave people are the citizens against virtually everything. They are the whiners, whingers, complainers. They're the mayors of water cooler town. They're the people who believe the companies had uh, the best days are in the past and the good days are not going to be so good. These are the people that you need out of the organization because they're never going to get on board anything. In the short time we have left together, one piece of advice you would give a company president today as it relates to becoming a high-speed company is what? The words spoken by Bob Engel, the CEO of CoBank, when he said, if you give people the why, they will give you the how. I think this is one of the most profound things I've ever heard in business. The biggest misconception about being a high-speed company is what? The biggest misconception about being a high-speed company is that people are running around inside a high-speed company out of breath, hysterical, and fast. They are more relaxed and breathe easier because they know exactly where they're going, how they're going to get there, and how they're going to wump everybody else on the way to getting there. Is there one question today I should have asked you that I haven't? Um, no, you always ask great questions, which is why I always 
like to be with you on BizTalk on WHO. You're one of those interviewers that actually reads the books. <laughs> but here's the concept. <laughs> if somebody has something good to say, you might want to stop and listen. <laughs> I've always exactly. found you've had something good to say. So, uh, Jason, if, if people want to learn more about what you do in addition to the book, where would they go? Uh, where they'd go is they'd go to uh, jason-jennings.com. It's all there, speeches, research, books. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's all there. It's, it's a very interactive website. And, and stop at a Hudson's bookstore inside an airport, and you'll find the book. Okay. Once again, Jason, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thanks for being on the program. I can't wait until the next time I get to the heartland in Des Moines and your great radio station. Take care. Thank you. Our guest has been Jason Jennings. We've been talking about his book, The High Speed Company, and it's always great to have Jason on the program. One of my key takeaways from what Jason had to say today, having these guiding principles by which you make decisions to run your company. But more importantly, are you hiring people that are aligned with these guiding principles? I heard a speaker say one time that if you're going to sail across the ocean, don't hire a sailor Find a good man and teach him how to sail. In other words, man your ship with like-minded people, and it makes for smooth sailing. This or other BizTalk podcasts may be downloaded by visiting our website, biztalkradioshow.com, where you can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at BizTalk1040 and like us on Facebook. If you want to learn the strategies finding and getting performance out of A-player salespeople, Contact Performance Group by calling 800-950-9509 or visit us on the web at pmgllc.net. This has been your host, Jim Lovato.